Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike Hubert Artis for another episode of The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to take up the Esquinazi case and specifically focus on the opinion from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on defining what was instrumentality. So, Mike, first of all, welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks, Tom. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. It's a it's a, we get to to sound like lawyers a little bit on, on this one, which will be nice. So, Mike, uh, could you give us a little bit of background into what the Esquinazi case was and what led to this opinion from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals? Yeah, sure. Sure. Happy to. So the, the case, um, it, it arose out of um, a, a, a case against two executives of a company called uh, Terra Telecommunications. Terra it was, a, it was a Florida company. Um, that was involved in the, the telecom industry. Uh, the exact business, you sort of have to be a, a telecom expert to understand their exact business model, but they, they basically were purchasing phone time from, from foreign vendors. Um, and then they were reselling those that time to, to customers in the U.S., uh, obviously at, at, a, at a markup to make a profit. Well, one of their vendors, so one of the companies that they were purchasing phone time from was uh, telecommunications to Haiti. It's a, a it is a, um, a Haitian uh, telecommunications company, um, and uh, they, you know, I think the corrupt scheme ultimately was that they got they got themselves into some some serious debt with respect to to uh, the Haitian telecommunications company, um, and rather than than pay back the full debt, they worked out some side deals. Um, with the the you know senior executives at this at this company, uh, where they would pay them you know whatever it was ten percent of the of the debt in order to get a fifty percent reduction off the debt. So they saved a bunch of money trying to pay back um, this debt. They were ultimately um, they were ultimately charged uh, and um, went to trial and and lost at at, at trial. Um, and they they took issue um, with a number of things, and they, they appealed a number of things that that, that made it to the eleventh eleventh circuit. Uh, but for the purposes of our conversation, um, well, let me st- take a step back because uh, something kind of important happened in the middle here. At, right after they, I think, almost immediately, a couple days after the jury returned a verdict in their case, uh, another executive of of um, Terra who was going to go to trial produced to the government. Uh, a, a an affidavit or a declaration from the president of Haiti that basically said it was apparently very short and basically said um, it's 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 not a Haitian governmental entity it, it, um, and so the prosecutors having received this document then produced it to uh, Esquinazi Mr Esquinazi and Mr Rodriguez. Um, and you know they they thought that that was a, a, a Brady violation, but it also brought up a, a, a lot of other sort of questions about well, wait a second was was this company this Haitian telecommunications company a Haitian government entity because obviously if it was was not uh, then the FCPA wouldn't apply. Um, and following that, the president came back with a more detailed uh, affidavit saying uh, you know the. The Haitian government owns owns this company. We appoint its its directors. All I was saying in my private, my my previous uh, 
declaration or affidavit was that there's not a statute that establishes this company as a Haitian uh, a government governmental entity. So fast forward, um, Mr. Esquinazi and Mr. Uh, Rodriguez uh, appeal uh, a number of things, as I mentioned, but but for the purposes I think of our conversation here, uh, they they appealed um, re really related to the jury instruction on instrumentality and what that meant. Uh, you know, in the FCPA uh, it applies to to government officials, and the government officials are are you know it's it's a it's a long uh, a long definition, but includes you know officials of of state owned uh, agencies, ministries, and then instrumentalities. And so, so they were, they were, uh, they took issue with the, with how that was defined, and it it brought to the Eleventh Circuit, which we're, we'll discuss. What does that mean? What does instrumentality mean? Because it's not defined in the statute, uh, and you know, how how does it apply? And it, it's it's really become, as I, I know we're going to discuss, sort of a, a really uh, one of the two or three cases that that we have in the FCPA space that kind of help us, to, you know sort of figure out what this statute was saying in different places. So the so jury instructions that the defendants objected to really uh, turned on two separate uh, items, Mike. First of all, they claimed that only a part of the government would qualify as instrumentality. So as you said, it had to be an agency. It had to be a department. It had to be someone who worked in, in one of those types of, of or organizations. And two, uh, the FCPA should be construed to encompass foreign entities performing, quote, core, end quote, government functions, similar to departments and agencies. And the court really made short shift of both of those arguments in the um, part of the government that would cover uh, uh, actual part of the government. The court pointed to the grease um, payment or facilitation payment exception under the FCPA, which specifically allowed uh, facilitation payment exception for phone service. And the court said that uh, it made no internal logical consistency to allow phone payments to be exempted out as facilitation payments or bribes for phone payments, or excuse me, I should say facilitation payments for phone <laughs> services. Uh, if phone service was not going to be covered by the FCPA in some other way. And the second thing they, they talked about, and, and this was for me perhaps the one of the most interesting because I have not seen a lot of cases where U.S. treaty obligations were a part of a court's decision. But here, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals pointed to the OECD treaty obligations that the United States entered to in 1998 uh, around the OECD Treaty of Anti-Bribery and Anti-Corruption. And as part of that treaty, there had to be uh, anti-corruption laws around instrumental or focused on instrumentalities. And the U.S. Congress changed or modified or amended the FCPA at that time to comply with other components of the OECD treaty. But they did not change the language of the FCPA regarding instrumentalities. And the court uh, said that Congress was fully aware of what the OECD treaty required. They did not change language around instrumentality. Ipso facto ergo, uh, Congress must have thought instrumentalities were covered and they are different than part of the government. 
And it really reminded me of one of my favorite lines I heard in law school, which is sometimes Congress doesn't speak and sometimes Congress doesn't speak louder than other times. And uh, that seemed to me to be a pretty loud, non-speaking role by Congress. But those was the two uh, prongs of the court's decision. But that really led to them to formulate a test for us. And in preparation for this podcast, we looked at some of the tests. We looked at some of the indicia that the Department of Justice itself had cited to us in the uh, first edition of the FCPA resource guides. So uh, was there anything about the test that the 11th Circuit came up with that you thought was new or different, or did they really amalgamate a series of factors into a coherent framework for us as lawyers to analyze problems, but also to discuss with clients going forward? Yeah, you know, I looked at it pretty carefully, um, and, and it's it's kind of interesting to look at. And I guess where I, where I come down on it is I, I'm, I cannot envision a, an entity that would not have been considered an instrumentality or would have been considered an instrumentality under the previous formulations that that would be different now under the Esquinazi formulation. Um, the, the factors are very similar, although they're organized differently. And I think that's, that's to me, one of the key takeaways from Esquinazi to me is, you know, previously, well, one, this is the first court of appeals case that we had on this issue. So we, we were prior to this, um, and you saw it in the, the first edition of the resource guide. You know, we were looking at, at jury instructions that, that courts, district courts had in, uh, approved in trial cases and, and really not, not even that many of those, only, only, you know, two or three. And so now we had a court of appeals looking at this issue and sort of as, as they do formulating a usable sort of, uh, test and often as, as they do, cause our minds are, are designed to really deal with organization in a particular way. Uh, they they broke it broke the main test down into two to two prongs, and I think uh, that had the effect of really making this all just an easier analysis, rather than having this this list of factors that may or may not apply, and you should think about when you're considering whether um, uh, whether an entity is a is an instrumentality. They they made it much easier. Does the does the the um, is it you know basically controlled? by the government and is it serving a, a government function? Something the government views as, its, as a function of its own. So now we have these two prongs and the, the factors that we had considered before are sort of split between these two prongs. Sometimes there's overlap between them. So it's not a, it's not a perfect apples to apples, but I think it didn't, it didn't change the game in terms of what's gonna be considered an instrumentality, but, but it made the analysis easier, I think, in, in my view. So uh, the two tests were the control test and the function test. And the court listed a series of factors they would consider under each. And I think it's worthwhile just to go through those. Under the control test, the foreign government's formal designation of the entity, whether the government has an interest in the entity, the government's ability to hire and fire the entity's principles, the extent to which the profits, if any, go directly to the government, the extent to which the government funds the entity if it fails to break even, and the link of time, all of these factors existed. Under the function test, does the entity have a monopoly over the function that existed to carry out? Does the foreign government subsidize the cost associated with the entity providing the services? And does the entity provide services to the public at large in the foreign country? 
And does the foreign government generally perceive the entity to be uh, performing a government function? And by laying it out with this, and it's, I don't want to say an amalgamation of other concepts that were floating around because I want to give credit to whoever came up with this formulation. But these are factors that we have looked at sort of individually, I think, in uh, before this decision was released. But for me, the significance was putting those down and giving us a way to, to think through with rigor and structure, which is what lawyers are supposed to do, uh, a test to determine if the facts met the law which we were looking at, which was the FCPA. How about for you, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think one of the other interesting things, and, and you see this in the more recent version of the resource guide, is that on the control piece, in particular the control test, as you as you framed it, um, you know, after talking about all these different factors, and, and they they mention a, a number of them, the DOJ does, DOJ and SEC, and the resource guide, uh, they go on to say, what perhaps the most important, uh, I, I don't know if they use important as the right term is still ownership, right? If, if maybe that's where you should start, right? Because if, if the government owns it and if they own more than 50% of it, chances are it's going to be considered to be controlled by the, by the government. So we can, we can eliminate the control test. And then they point out rightly that even if the government doesn't own uh, 50% or more, it can still be controlled by the government. And there's, there's, uh, you know, I think in the Alcatel Lucent case from years and years ago, um, one of the one of the the the, the companies involved in that uh, was a Malaysian telecom company that was not fifty percent owned by by the government, but it was controlled. The government appoints appointed the directors and uh, you know had the ability to to make important decisions for the company. So um, that 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 piece of it stood out. But I, I fully agree with you that what this did really for for practitioners, and I know it's really meant more for for the courts, but for us, as we're as we're going through facts, is is created a, a very uh, user friendly test because each of these factors, uh, when you break them down, you know when you have a long list of factors, it's it's hard to tell. Do I need them all? Do I need some of them? How how do we how do we figure out? Just do any more have any more weight than the others? But now we have two specific questions that we need need to answer, and the factors that we should we should go through to answer those questions. And you know I I think it's open for debate, but in some ways, you you could argue that if if you hit any you know if you hit any one of the the factors in the control test or any one of the factors in the function test, um, you you know I think there's an argument to be made that that's good enough, right? So um, it, it really makes the analysis much easier following this decision. So the um, court actually put these factors in place for the facts of this case in the Esquinazi appeal. And they framed it in five different uh, questions that uh, I'm going to go through. Uh, one, does telecom provide services to citizens of Haiti? Two, are the key officials and directors government officials or appointed by the government or government officials? The extent to Haiti's ownership of the telecom in question. Yeah, four, the obligations and privileges under Haitian law. And five, whether the company itself is perceived and to be understood not to be owned by the government, but performing a uh, official or governmental functions. And that led me to, to try to put together some factors that, that I think were important and kind of what I 
put together from this. So I'm going to go through these now. And these are Tom's factors. Once again, this is not the court. So number one, ownership and financial control. Uh, is it 50%? Well, we've actually had joint ventures declared as foreign government owned when 27%. So 50% is a threshold, but it's not the threshold. Actual control. Here, I think this may be more important than ownership. If you control, if you have 40%, if you have, in a prior podcast, we looked at a joint venture where a company had 40% of a joint venture, but they actually controlled it. Uh, so you can have below 50%, but if you have actual control, that may be the key question. Uh, privileges and obligations. Uh, do they have the privileges or obligations of a government entity? Or uh, does the government entity have a right to control its functions? Financing. And this one we have really not talked about as much, but a key indicia of a, non, of a, non, of a governmental entity is it doesn't have to make a profit. And if you... Wonder whether I've stepped out on a limb. Think about the post office, at least during my lifetime. Uh, it's a government service. Everyone uses it. We don't want it to go away. And right now, it doesn't make a profit. So uh, you don't have to worry about profitability. And indeed, if it's a nonprofit or doesn't make a profit, that may be a bigger um, indicia. And finally, I find, Mike, in the FCPA world, Andre Agassi was as prescient as anyone in the 1990s when he had a series of ads saying that perception is reality. And if you're perceived to be a government entity, you probably are. Uh, you dip, typically don't want to be perceived to be a government entity unless you're some type of enforcement, uh, law enforcement position. But if you are perceived to be that way, then it's probably going to be an instrumentality because you can't be perceived to be uh, an instrumentality or government run unless you actually are government run. So what's the re, uh, the perception in that country? And those are sort of the factors I came up with. Uh, but I think uh, probably the most important is control. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Uh, you know, I think. A lot of this can be answered with that very first question you, you brought up, right? The, the, the ownership and control. Now, there's exceptions. There's absolutely ex exceptions. And, you know, I think uh, when, you, when you sort of get into the debate about this, people point to that time period when, the, when we did the auto bailout here in the U.S. And, and at, at a certain point, the U.S. government, you know, owned a majority share of, of GM, something to that effect. And was that, did that make all the employees of, of GM government officials under this rubric, if that happened in another country? Um, but I think the, that key, that, that initial question of ownership and then actual control settles a lot of, a lot of this because it, under most circumstances, entities that the government either, either owns a large stake in or actually controls they do it because they're serving a, a government function. Um, now there, there are probably exceptions. Uh, and I could, I could think of a few, you know, if you, you asked me to come up with a scenario where a state owned entity would not be considered a, uh, instrumentality, I could probably come up with a few, but, um, if you get to that point, uh, and answer that question first now, you know, I, I think the, the other, the other factors probably fall into place. So I agree with you. I think that, that control piece ends up being really the, the key, the key part of the analysis. So 
as we move to sort of trying to think through the significance of this decision, uh, I think it was uh, 10 years ago now um, that this decision came out. And what I think we don't appreciate now was just how important this decision was at that time. It really was an open question, or at least a debated question, of whether a um, instrumentality was going to be covered or what was an instrumentality, and could a company owned by a government, a, a business owned by a government, be covered under the FCPA because it reached, obviously, to uh, state-owned enterprises in the energy space literally across the world and in healthcare and many other industries. So it really was an important decision. Uh, that a lot of us had had thought and talked about for a long time. And then for people like you and me, we've geeked out on on enforcement actions over the years, and we certainly did on this case, uh, because there was a lot of meat in the court's decision. It seemed to me to be well thought out, well thought through, well written. And in addition to being a well-written legal decision, it was something that we could take – and utilize uh, from a business or uh, consulting or, or client advisory perspective going forward as well. And then it stood the test of time. Uh, there's been no other case uh, to raise these issues. Uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court turned down cert on this. There's been no other circuit court going a different direction, which would create a conflict between the circuits. So this may be as close to well-settled FCPA law for a case that didn't go to the U.S. Supreme Court as we may ever have one. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think that's a really good point because there was real debate. I mean, and, and the debate, you know, when we say should an instrumentality be included, obviously that's part of the language in the FCPA. What we're really saying in the debate was these businesses that are, that are in operating in the commercial sector but are owned by the government, should those should those entities be considered instrumentalities so that they are, their employees would be considered government officials. And that, that was the debate. You know, I, I think it was, it was more academic than anything else that the, the enforcement authorities were certainly treating them as though they were instrumentalities. Uh, companies were, were reaching settlement agreements on the basis that, that those types of entities were, were instrumentalities. Uh, but it certainly was something that was, that was debated and discussed. And given that debate and discussion, it, it is a little bit surprising uh, that this sort of ended it. I mean, I, you know, as, a, as a, again, as an academic exercise, you can debate it all you want. But uh, the, this decision was it was pretty clear. Um, I, I think it was pretty persuasive, as I, as I mentioned, uh, in, it, in the analysis of, of both the treaty obligations and, and the, um, uh, you know, and, and the discussion of the Greece facilitation payment exception. And there, there haven't been any other cases. No, no one else is really challenging this. I think district courts uh, in, in other circuits um, have have really, you know, it's not like there's a ton of FCPA prosecutions out there, individuals, but uh, have have been comfortable adopting adopting this uh, this rubric in in jury instructions moving forward. And and it's yeah, you're you're right. It's a good way to say it. It's 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 about as well settled as you can get for not having it have been settled by the Supreme Court. Because it's not even like we've had it, it, it to my knowledge, 
many challenges to this understanding in other, in other circuits. So I know one of the ongoing debates in our world is, do we need more cases to go to trial so we can get more case law? And this seemed to be an example of some very significant case law uh, that came out of a defense of a trial and the Esquinazi at least paid heavily for going to trial because he was sentenced to 15 years. And so I don't ever want to forget the human element behind this, but this was a, a really important decision, just probably five or less circuit court decisions around the FCPA. And in the, the modern era, I think it's the only, uh, well, we had a second circuit decision uh, based on trial recently, but a uh, pretty important decision and one we're still using to this day, Mike. One we're still using to this day, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's unfair to use like a top five uh, type type exercise because there haven't been that many, um, but it, it's it's up there with USVK and and you know I think you probably can put the Hoskins decision um, up the, up there now too uh, because they important in 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 that they helped sort of settle uh, something that was maybe maybe slightly unsettled and that companies were probably thinking about, but would never challenge. Right. Um, and, and important in it's, as we said, in it's sort of staying power, uh, for sure. I think there's absolutely, there are other issues in the FCPA that, 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 that I think practitioners would love to see settled by court. And I know Hoskins dealt with jurisdiction. There's fault. There's, there's plenty more discussions around jurisdiction that, uh, that, that people would like to see settled. I think there's probably, some some discussions and 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 uh, issues around how the statute of limitations is applied and, and other things, but um, you know, as you said, there's there's maybe only been if we could probably stretch it to five, maybe if we we racked our brain, but there's only been a few uh, of these these issues and how we interpret the FCPA that have been done by courts. Otherwise, we're we're really relying on the the enforcement authorities to do their own interpretation. Uh, and I think, you know, I, again, you're right to, 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 to mention the human element of this. Um, and, and I, I'm not, um, you know, wishing anyone to, to, you know, risk significant portions of their, their lifetime to, to make our jobs easier in terms of interpreting a, a law. But, um, I think we would, we would all benefit from additional cases that, that are tried and from additional, the courts weighing in on some issues and, and this is really the only way it happens. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I uh, can't wait to see what we come up with for our next episode. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Tom. Thanks.